is The Deadbeat, where we talk all things obituaries, true crime, and the politics of loss. I'm Mary-Kate Gorman. And I'm Solana Quistorf. And so it had to be so individual, but it never really could be. It was always part of this collective tragedy and trauma. Mm -hmm. All right. This is the podcast where we talk about two genres that we both study very closely, deeply. Attentively. Attentively. Nice. And I'm really excited about our episode today. Me too. Me too. This week, we are talking about inequalities. That's just not this week. Let me scroll down to episode (laughs) episode two. (laughs) I'm just at the top of my document here. I wasn't quite sure. (laughs) Really firing on all cylinders over here. (laughs) All right. Now that I've scrolled down to the proper script for this episode. God damn. (laughs) My Kate, I'm sorry. I'm ruining this. No, I just, I don't know why it's so funny to me. (laughs) Because that is the most, like, realistic. And I'm a, I'm a tearful cry character. (laughs) A tearful laughter. (laughs) Oh my god. God bless. (laughs) I'm sorry. I get a little teary when I laugh. I'm not proud of it. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. Also, this is the worst goddamn mascara I've ever owned in my life, but Mm. that's not important. It is. It's deeply important. Okay. (laughs) Are you ready to talk about what we're going to cover this week? I am. (laughs) Okay. The theme for this week is when the circumstances of a death or of a tragedy or of a crime overtake the tragedy itself. And we also asked ourselves this guiding question, which is, how do these genres perpetuate circumstances that dehumanize the victim? And that's sort of where we're at. Who do you think is going to go first today, Mary-Kate? I think you should go first, if you're up for it. I can go first. And then if it doesn't come out right, we will burn down the library. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a very rational plan to me. (laughs) Okay. Mary-Kate, last episode, I told a story about a line of thinking that started my project. Today, I want to tell about the thing that started it all, not only for me, but for everybody. Do you know what it is? Tell me. We're talking about Sarah Koenig's 2014 serial. Let's do it. So, for those of you that don't know, Serial is like the podcast that is credited with starting off this like media revolution, which is the new format of the true crime podcast. It had 500 million downloads. Wow. Right? Doesn't that seem like mind boggling? I can't even conceptualize that number in my head. It's insane. And really, that amount of audience participation redefine the genre but I also think it created like a new market in medium which I think we're going to talk about a little bit today how the success of serial really 
came to erase its progress. Say more, say more. Ooh. Okay. So just to give you a little bit of background, if you haven't listened to the original serial, you certainly should. I think it does a lot of really good things. As any piece of text, there's plenty of room for critique. There's also a lot of follow-up episodes to Serial, kind of revealing some more details to the case that maybe wasn't included in the original production. Serial is like a branch of a company called This American Life. And Serial has three seasons. They each tell a story week by week. So basically, the situation of Serial is that in 2014, when this was going down, well, I think they actually did this drive in 2013, Koenig's show became infamous for this moment when she tries to drive across Baltimore, Maryland. Mm -hmm. So she's basically saying that if she can beat the stopwatch time of 21 minutes, she can prove that a man didn't murder his girlfriend. This 21 minute window is very important because this is the state's time frame for when Adnan Syed murdered his girlfriend, Heyman Lee, when she was 18. So this takes place in part of Baltimore, Maryland, with two students from a high school called Woodlawn High School. Mm-hmm. And basically, what she had to do was drive from Woodlawn High School to a Best Buy parking lot, leaving enough time to strangle Heyman Lee Jesus. and drive back. To her 40 million live listeners... Right. So we talked about how there's 500 million downloads at the time, 40 million live listeners. This drive was a big deal because what it did is it made it very simple. Did this happen or not? If you can do it in 21 minutes, it potentially happened. If you can't, it didn't. And that basically summarizes the controversy that Serial puts itself on. So the show is written, like I said, by Sarah Koenig and a woman named Julie Snyder. But it's not actually as simple as that fifth episode where they do the drive makes it seem. Serial itself gets its name by saying that it tells one story week by week. So in that way, it's trying to like bring back almost like serial installments of novels, which is like a thing from the 19th century. And I think continues in a lot of ways, like series of TV shows and things like that. But that is where the serial name comes from. The unfortunate part I argue, about Serial's name is that it jumps into a genre of true crime in a brand new way. It's doing a brand new kind of medium, asking some new questions, but it uses this word serial, which people associate with serial killers. Yep. I know that when I started listening to true crime, I was very interested in serial killers. It seems like a very strange phenomenon. How did you think about serial killers like when you were younger? Yeah, I was deeply, deeply intrigued by them. Mm-hmm. And I know we've already kind of discussed this, but I think I could not fathom how people would get to that way. And I thought if I like yeah. consumed enough content, I would be able to somehow understand or know how someone would, as if there was one kind of special list of ingredients that yeah. one needed. And that was like all it took. It, you know, it, yeah. of course I didn't understand the complexity of it. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but those stories were the ones that sucked me in. Right. I don't think that's your fault, right? It's nobody's fault. Serial killers are certainly fascinating because they're so horrifying. And I talked a little bit about last time that 
we as a society are obsessed with the deaths of white women. And in the 70s, right, there's a repeated occurrence of a serial killer murdering multiple white women in a very showy way in California. We're talking about people like the Golden State Killer and Ted Bundy who really draw this fascination of how this could possibly happen. There's a few scholars who write about this. David Schmid is one who talks about the celebrity and that these serial killers are sort of held in this very famous, like their names are recognizable in households and their faces are. Yes. There's also a man named Mark Seltzer who writes a lot about true crime and talks about serial killers as well in sort of the fascination that they're almost part machine. So there's this intrigue, there's this interest, and serial that's talking about true crime names itself serial. I think what that does is erase some of the progress that serial makes. But the other thing that Sarah Koenig does, which I appreciate, is she approaches this story not as a way to solve the murder of Heyman Lee, but as a way to advocate for a retrial for Adnan Sayed, mm-hmm. disguised as a true crime podcast. After Cheryl came out, shows like Crime Junkie and other shows, there's a bunch of them out there, have gone back to look at the details of the Adnan Sayed case mm-hmm. and the Heyman Lee case. Essentially, these podcasts make it seem like there's a ton of evidence that Koenig intentionally left out. The reason for that is she knew she had this opportunity, allegedly, allegedly. There's also an interview with Koenig where she talks about this, which we'll link to in the show notes for sure, that she knew as a storyteller, if you could arrest a conundrum for people about innocence and justice and somebody serving a life sentence unfairly on a 21-minute drive, if she could just rest it teetering on the edge there, she could invest 500 million people in wondering about a wrongful conviction. Yeah. And she thought that if she approached it with like, this guy clearly didn't do it, that's like a political piece. And how interesting is that, that she reshaped a question about wrongful conviction into a true crime genre? Well, I think it goes back to our discussion about everything's a business. Yeah. Right? And so regardless of what point you're trying to make, there's always this pressure to make it sell or make it something that people will listen to. And it clearly was. Yeah. Right? But that's always the pressure, I think, that's on podcasts and news shows and all kinds of genres is you have to get the Mm buy-in from your audience, from your listeners. People often feel like they have to package it in a style that's going to grab the most attention. What I think is progressive about Serial is the way that Heyman Lee's death is not exploited. And we could argue about this because some people might disagree with me. But I think compared to the temperature of other very popular true crime podcasts, Koenig largely leaves Heyman Lee to rest. And she also was taking up the case of a Muslim boy in Baltimore in 1999, which comes with its own political ramifications. And it's also an instance where we're not focusing on white people. Yeah. And she's trying to clear the name of a brown man, essentially, or she's trying to question the life sentence of a brown man. 
while honoring and valuing the death of a Korean American. This largely contrasts with a documentary that came after Serial, which was directed by Amy J. Berg, and it played on HBO, and it's called The Case Against Adnan Syed. In this documentary, which is worth a watch, you should definitely check it out, they animate Heyman Lee as if she's like running around and talking, and they give her a voice actor. And so when her friends are interviewed talking about how bubbly Heyman Lee was, for example, a like caricature of a Korean-American out there playing field hockey would be like, oh my gosh, I love my life. And she narrates her journal entries. And this is an intrusive moment in the series that I think is important to contrast with the podcast. The podcast doesn't try to exploit the violence in the same way. So the documentary is where they're narrating her journal entries, right? Yes. How did they get that from... Did they acquire that from her family? And so I'm not quite sure how they got those, but her family has never spoken out publicly about her murder. I think potentially one of her siblings has, but basically Koenig was like, they're not talking to me. I'm not even going to try, you know? And somehow this show is doing that. They're reading her journals out loud as they like animate her. And it's tricky because this case involves two students from Woodlawn High School in Baltimore. It occurs in 1999. Heyman Lee goes missing on January 13th. So she's an 18-year-old Korean high school student, very smart. She's a field hockey player, great athlete. And this is all according to interviews with childhood friends and teachers. Heyman Lee was found by a maintenance man in Lincoln Park in February in a shallow grave. It was found that she died by manual strangulation which means with hands, and Adnan Syed was arrested for her murder. Those are sort of the details that the podcast gets into, which is why I said some of those things, which I know are sort of graphic. Other podcasts and the HBO show get more graphic, which I just don't feel really comfortable doing. Other key facts about this case is that Heyman Lee had a new boyfriend named Don, And so the theory was that there was strife between Adnan and Heyman Lee after they broke up because they used to date. She got a new boyfriend named Don, and Syed, Adnan Syed, becomes very jealous. So let's talk about Adnan. In Sarah Koenig's words, she calls him the Pakistani Muslim kid, which is how he described himself, because that was very much kind of the double world that he was living in as also an American teenager. So he came from a conservative Muslim family, but he was, quote, a healthy American teenager, unquote. He was also called the class clown in the podcast, a very likable and liked kid. He was an EMT during his high school days. That's how he made some money. And he was also on the track team. And basically, the state's case, like I said, decided that Adnan was jealous They also pointed to the way that he was from a conservative Muslim family and also a rowdy American kid to indicate that he was a liar. And those two facts, those two ideas and motives are sort of what's driving this case. There really isn't no physical evidence in the case against Adnan Syed, but there is a single thing that basically shuts this case, which is Jay, who's a friend of Adnan's, And he'd single-handedly convince police that Adnan had did it. 
Jay claimed that after school, Adnan killed Hay in the Best Buy parking lot after he asked her for a ride home from school. Jay alleges that Adnan put Hay in the trunk and then went to the track practice for an alibi. Then later that night, Jay and Adnan stashed Hay's car at a park and ride and buried Hay's body in Lincoln Park. So I mentioned earlier how like other podcasts have talked about the way that this gets more controversial. Yeah. And one of them is forced interrogation by police. One of the tactics of police is to interrogate kids. I mean, Jay was, I think, 19. Yeah. So a legal adult for hours and hours on end to the point where they'll say anything. Yeah. And psychologists have found this. And I listened to an episode of International Infamy which I'll link to in the show notes, that discusses this like quite at length, at the ways that a uh, witness can be manipulated by police. Serial doesn't even touch on this idea. But the idea that Jay could be thoroughly pushed by police to say these things certainly makes the story a bit more controversial than perhaps Koenig framed it. But how it all starts is an email from Rabia Shadri. And Rabia and her brother Saad are friends with Anon. Mm-hmm. And Rabia becomes a lawyer and is basically trying to advocate for a retrial for Adnan. Koenig says she got involved because she was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And she had written about Adnan's lawyer before because after Adnan's trial, his lawyer was disbarred for malpractice. So what I want to point out here is there's all of these instances where Koenig is dropping the ways in which this case was fundamentally fucked Mm -hmm. with a bad lawyer, a bad witness, all of these things. And yet she still is like, well, maybe in those 21 minutes, you know, her famous line about it is uh, she spent an entire year trying to figure out, quote, where a high school kid was for 21 minutes after school one day in 1999. The alibi of a 17-year-old boy. So she pivots her story in this way. But let's talk a little bit more about, like, what Serial is trying to do. Serial is trying to earn publicity for Rabia to advocate for a new case for Adnan. And they were in the end successful. I'm not sure to what aims, and I can post about this in the show description, because... There's always news coming out about this. Like, there wasn't a retrial, but there was a hearing for a retrial, which was denied. But then they're trying to, um, what do you call it? Like, where you push back against what they say? Uh, appeal? Appeal. So then they started to appeal. So there's there's not a ton there yet. But what I really want to do is talk about how serial breaks the mold, which is why it doesn't focus on the whiteness of the victim. It doesn't yeah. exploit the violence of the victim. And really, it's like sneaking in a political movement into a mass-mediated podcast. But let's talk about what scholar Lindsay A. Sherrill calls the serial effect. So this comes from her, her article, which we can link to, called The Serial Effect and the True Crime Podcast Ecosystem. Basically, serial gets consumed by its own popularity because it creates a demand and it creates a market for storytelling that revolves around true crime Mm -hmm. via the podcast. And that is the only legacy that it leaves. It's legacy of treating the victims 
with fairness or even with censorship, that doesn't last. Focusing on non-white victims doesn't last. Advocating for a retrial or a wrongful conviction doesn't last. Instead, the commodity lasts. Exactly right. And I think we see that play out today. Koenig single-handedly built an empire that she didn't mean to. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. Here's a quote from that article from Cheryl. From the perspective of media producers such as podcast hosts, belonging to a particular niche like true crime affects audience expectations, ethical norms, advertising, creative choices, and competition. So in other words, the new medium adopted the old genre because certain audiences have certain expectations about how the true crime podcast functions, which is all about women, all about serial killers, all about all of that. Even this story gets co-opted. So not only does Koenig's new genre get co-opted to talk about white women and exploit the victims, this story also does, which is where I was going talking about the documentary, The Case Against Adnan Sayed, where there's a caricature, a caricature, caricature, a caricature, (laughs) (laughs) who narrates Heyman Lee's journals. Does the documentary take a similar stance to the podcast where it's exploring the reasons why Adnan should get a new trial? Or is it critical of serial? What are the documentary's aims? Yeah, I think that, and I would have to revisit again, it certainly is happy with serial. Serial blew this case up in a way that nobody was expecting, but Koenig was obviously hoping for But I think that they take a very different approach of trying to solve the case. And there's this moment early, it's maybe episode one, where they go to like a community gathering, talking about Adnan and updating the community on the case. And there's a line where Rabia says, we have to remember a woman died, where they're trying to humanize Hay in a way. And I actually feel like it sort of does the opposite, where it... Mm -hmm displays her as a more ideal victim perhaps or kind of disembodies her yeah yeah certainly so like we said our theme for this week is when the circumstances overtake the tragedy and perhaps i went off brand a little bit but what i think actually happens in the case of serial is they were pushing the true crime genre in a new and different and perhaps more ethical way and instead the fame And the possibility for capitalism to intervene made it so that legacy doesn't last. And the only thing that lasts is the format of the true crime podcast. I think that's probably so right. Thank you. And I hate, oh God, I'm thinking through this now. Yeah. But I mean, people will talk a lot about serial. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially I feel like doing this podcast for our project because of listening to these things, that's one of the ones that comes up Yeah, a lot that people will name drop. Mm-hmm. Not many folks talk about the actual case. Yeah, exactly. It's the podcast over the case. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember when Serial came out, were you like a team Adnan did or team Adnan didn't? That was like a thing. So I was a late listener, but anyway, I do remember being 
the 21 minutes was the th- of course mm. and that's how it's designed to be that was the thing that i always got hung up on i yeah. was like it's just also i don't know if this is important but the idea of driving across the state in 21 minutes was alarming to me because <laughs> well, we're because like, we're from wyoming yeah. well, sorry don't that's not important <laughs> well i did some digging and research because i wanted to know a little bit more and the map is small it certainly seems doable but they you know they do the whole thing and i trust their journalistic integrity and all of this the one part that always irks me is she says of course she does because this is her whole rhetorical aim the whole time she says well maybe maybe it could have happened mm-hmm. maybe you could do it in 21 minutes yeah but the way she broke it up is like X amount of minutes to wait at the parking lot, X amount of minutes to get to the Best Buy. Then in the recording, she says anywhere from like one to 10 minutes or something is how long it takes for somebody to die of manual strangulation. And in my own like research and I was Googling shit, like how long does it take to die by, you know, this is how deep and dark we are getting in the show. But like, um, it's a while. I guess what my point is, is that I think she was trying to tweak the numbers to make it seem so close. So down to the very last second, she was always trying to make this as controversial as possible, which clearly worked, but it also brought up a lot of other scary, close call cases that we know of that lead to conversations about Ted Bundy. And lead to a world where fucking Zac Efron could play Ted Bundy in a oh my documentary. God. Yeah. Can we just... So... I mean... I know. For the love. Yeah. When you first listened, were you ardently on one side or the other? I think I was always, he didn't do it. hmm To me, if all the perfect things have to align perfectly at the most great time to do whatever... It doesn't make sense, especially once I learned more about police interrogation, because I, I thought there was no way that Jay would lie like that, because Jay basically claims, I mean, they did it together. Yeah. There's no way somebody would implicate themselves that way, except when I learned more about the coercive psychological power of police interrogation, especially because Jay is a young black man. And 19. I mean, like yeah. you said, legally an adult, but a kid, a yeah. kid. In Baltimore in 1999, you know? But I think I was always, how? There's no way. And there's Mm -hmm. no way a man in prison who had no chance at another conviction until this podcast would maintain his innocence that vehemently. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't know any murderers. Well, I probably do, statistically, but. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. I'm going to have nightmares about that tonight. Yeah. Um, I feel like I didn't ask for your input enough. So do you want to just go off a little bit about any thoughts you had and we can put them? No, no, this has been so fascinating. And thank you so much because I haven't thought about this case in a while. See, because Mm -hmm. I'm doing the thing where I think about the podcast and the product and the genre and and not the story. (laughs) So thank you because I haven't thought about it in a while. And I I want, it's on my list. I want to go watch that documentary. Mm And read some more about it. I was going to ask if you have any thoughts about this notion that people suggested, Crime Junkies is the one you mentioned, but people came out and suggested that perhaps her storytelling in the podcast was slanted Mm -hmm. and there was like evidence she overlooked. And I don't want to put you on the spot, 
Yeah. At all. But do you have any opinions about that or have you found that to be the case at all? It's tricky because who knows what access to what information Koenig had in 2014. And I should do more research. Like I've read that interview um, from her that we'll link to, but I should go back and revisit it. I do think that there was a very intentional storytelling tactic, like I said, to make this controversial. I don't know the ethics of that because would it really matter if this show blew up the way she did and she thought that somebody else did it? But we have this feeling like if a very popular true crime podcast could put out a theory or like say one way or another based on their information that that would change the outcome. But they're not investigators. They're not associated with the police. There's no guaranteeing that had she told the story a different way, that it would have been beneficial in any way to the case mm-hmm. in the way that it was to tell this story. But we can never know. And I think it would be super interesting to know if she, after like the first one, because you said it was, no, which one was live? Was it the very last episode of the season? She did a couple like from the courtroom, but those were extras. I'm just wondering like in the moment if she had any idea. Yeah. Like as new episodes were coming out, was she like, God, 40 million people. Yeah. She maintains her inquisitive attitude. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't know. How could? And is he lying to me? And she drops these comments that very much make it seems like she has no idea. And Mm -hmm. she is wondering genuinely. But I think in a way that's a storytelling mechanism. But man, we could talk about this for hours. But I want to hear I want to hear your case. Do you have any last thoughts you want to add? Um... No, I, gosh, I feel like I should have more to say. And like I said, I think there's so much to think about. So good, right? We yeah. could t- we could talk about that forever. And people do. They have whole shows dedicated to the follow-up. Yeah, because it's a freaking genre. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. That's what we're here to talk about. So mine for this week is, this one's kind of hard to talk about. Okay, it is. Um, and this is something that I like, struggle with finding the right words for, and I think is indicative of what we were saying the theme of this episode is, when the tragedy is, is just becomes so overwhelming in some cases. This is kind of some difficult content we will be discussing the aftermath of 9-11. So if that content feels potentially triggering or upsetting to you, please, please sit this one out. So I am going to talk today about portraits of grief. This is another project that comes from the New York Times. And they started running them in 2001 after 9-11 and after the attack on the World Trade Center. And it kind of came about because after the towers fell, family members immediately started posting missing posters all across the city of friends, family members, loved ones who were presumed to be in the towers at the time of the attacks. And so these missing flyers are everywhere across the city. And the New York Times reporters went out and just started collecting stacks of these flyers. And they brought them back to the office and they used the contact info 
on those to contact the family and friends of the people on the posters and just started asking about the family members because they didn't it became very apparent very quickly that any kind of confirmed list of deaths was going to take quite some time. So they decided to start writing about the missing. And they reached out to these families and and friends and ended up crafting these more, they were much shorter, much more feature-style obituaries. Some people don't even call them obituaries. They're sometimes called vignettes and things like that. And the paper eventually featured a whole new section after the attacks, and it was called A Nation Challenged, which it actually ran upside down on the back of the sports pages. I think it was so that each section could have its own front page. It ran as its own section, and it was the news coverage after the 9-11 attacks. And in the very back of that section, the papers started running these portraits of grief. From the time after the attacks, I would have to double check when the very first ones came out, but very, very shortly after the attacks, through the end of that year, so roughly 15 weeks or so, the New York Times printed these small profiles every single day, and they appeared less regularly after that, but they still appeared, but they just didn't happen quite as consistently. I think eventually over 2,000 portraits were compiled, but they kept their regular obituary section unchanged. Hmm. So instead of trying to adapt that portion of the paper, it ran this in addition to that section. It didn't change its typical form, but it came up with a new form and a new style that was supposed to suit as best it could these unthinkable circumstances. And I think it's interesting because the New York Times, which of course we think of as the national newspaper of record, and it is, and that's the role that the New York Times typically has taken up suddenly had to shift into something different. And all of a sudden, the New York Times had to decide how to cover national tragedy and trauma and loss and pain and grief. But that happened in their own backyard. And so suddenly, they were in the position of like a local newspaper and kind of had to take on the spirit of a local newspaper and kind of had to embody a new role and a whole new set of concerns that it never really had to before. And there's a PBS News interview with some of the reporters who worked on this project. And of course, we'll link to it. I think it's from December of that year, like late December. But the reporters and editors, of course, found it extremely difficult to nail down a style and a form for these portraits. And there was definitely a sense that a typical obit wasn't going to cut it. It was much more about capturing smaller details about these victims. And all of a sudden, the New York Times was concerned with the minutia. And it never really had 
had to be before. So they're often referred to by the reporters who worked on them as snapshots. There was only space to cover a very, very thin sliver of each of the victims. And each one, they probably run in the ballpark of 300-ish words, so much, much shorter than the standard obit. But it did try to capture the essence of a life cut short and stopped abruptly. I think that's the effect that they, they try to achieve. This interview is is really interesting, and I just want to acknowledge how difficult it was for the reporters to go out and do that work, but also I want to acknowledge how difficult it must have been, I can only imagine, for families to talk with those reporters about their loved ones. And those conversations happen so soon after the attacks, mm-hmm. and so I just want to acknowledge what that undertaking must have been like. There's an article I read by Nancy Miller. I think it came out in 2003. It's called Portraits of Grief, Telling Details and the Testimony of Trauma. And she does a really nice job of discussing the kind of editorial anxiety that took place around these snapshots. So I have this huge book. This is like over 500 pages long. It's kind of a massive thing, but this is the first edition of the collected portraits of grief. Wow. So after they had all been published and printed, they compiled them into a book. I mean, this is floating out there if that's something that folks are at all interested in. They've compiled everything into one place. um, Called the portraits of grief. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this was the first edition. And then I think there was a second edition that maybe includes several more. And what's cool is this has a foreword and an introduction by folks who would have been working on this at the time. So the foreword is by Howell Rains, I believe is how you say his name. And I'd like to just read a couple of his sentiments I'm kind of picking here. Just there are a few things that I want to read. He says, I'm convinced that the core of the portrait's appeal lies in our Metropolitan Desk's decision to cast these stories as snapshots of lives interrupted as they were being actively lived, rather than in the traditional obituary form. So again, they kind of resist the standard obituary practice in many ways. This is kind of a longer paragraph, but I think it's important. He says, but Portraits of Grief reminds us of the democracy of death, an event that lies in the future of every person on the planet. The scary force of that universal fact sometimes inspires in the most sober soul an impulse to flee into a carpe diem mood of headlong hedonism. I think, however, that the 1,910 stories reported in our paper and collected here in portraits 9-11-01 stir an entirely different feeling. When I read them, I am filled with an awareness of the subtle nobility of everyday existence, of the ordered beauty of quotidian life for millions of Americans, of the unforced dedication with which our fellow citizens go about their duties as parents, life partners, 
employers or employees, as planters of community gardens, coaches of the young, joyful explorers of this great land and the world beyond its shores. These lives bundled together so randomly into a union of loving memory by those terrible cataclysms of 9-11 remind us what Walt Whitman knew. The United States themselves are essentially the greatest poem. The forward's interesting. It includes a letter from a reader in Mm -hmm. San Francisco who writes in and says, you have delivered something far more complex than the news. And then the introduction is by Janie Scott, again, a reporter who would have been working on this project. Just a few things here from her that I want to highlight. First, she says, the stories became a source of connection and consolation, a poignant reminder of the individual humanity swallowed up by the dehumanizing vastness of the toll, a focus for the expression of unfocused sorrow. The profiles were never intended to be obituaries, at least in the traditional sense of the word. The taking stock of accomplishments, their length determined by an editor's opinion of the impact of a life. They were closer to snapshots, concise, impressionistic, their power at least as much emotional as intellectual, and they were utterly democratic. Those are just a couple of things that I I want to come back to mm-hmm. and I think provide valuable and interesting framing for the book. And if it's all right, I would like to read you a couple of these. Yeah, please. This is just a small selection. So they all have the names and then a small photograph. And then they have just like a little one-line blurb mm-hmm. that kind of almost... In the style of a newspaper, it almost looks like a subheader a little bit. So that's how all of these are styled. So this is for Stephen H. Berger, reader of encyclopedias. Stephen H. Berger may have seemed daunting to some people. He was a supervisor of corporate tax auditors at the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance. On top of that, he knew a little about everything. His wife, Susan, says he always got the answers right on Jeopardy and who wants to be a millionaire. To Ms. Berger, her husband was a good man who enjoyed the everyday things of life. Mr. Berger, 45, was a big reader of encyclopedias when he was not rooting for the Dallas Cowboys or working on his cooking. Just as a side note, my dad would be so upset if he he knew I was saying the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) My dad would too. On a podcast. When he was not rooting for the Dallas Cowboys or working on his cooking. At the office, he was known as Emeril, a reference to the well-known Food Channel chef. He was ribbed for taking his leftovers to work. He pampered his daughter, Melissa, 12, and they did many things together, including raking leaves and shoveling the snow. He was also the repairman around their New Jersey home. Mr. Berger also loved his job. He spent almost four hours a day getting to and from his job at the World Trade Center, said his wife, who is an auditor for New York City. He was pleased by little things, his wife said. He did not need any of the big things that some people do. He loved working in the Trade Center. He had the view of the city. Wow. 
I get a little teary reading these. I get a little choked up. This is for Stacy S. McGowan, known by her embrace. Stacy S. McGowan was known for her hugs, just part of a comfortable feeling she engendered that a friend chose to call Staciness. Quote, hers was a hug that would essentially render every other hug you'll ever receive in your life a complete insult to hugging, <laughs> said the friend, Patrick Corey, in a eulogy. Tom McGowan, her husband, elaborated from their home in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. She made those around her feel better about themselves and the life they're in, just through the enjoyment of them. You know, Stacy Sennis McCowan, 38, a managing director for Sandler O'Neill Partners, was president of her class each year at Nyack, I think is how you say it, Nyack High School, and played for its varsity lacrosse team and later for Boston College. It was at college that Tom McGowan, now an executive in foreign exchange marketing for Reuters, first saw her and fell in love. They were married nearly 10 years ago and had two daughters, Ryan, five, and Casey, four. Quote, she had no pretensions and she loved life every day, he said. She was just warm and giving and happy and funny, proud, strong, and graceful. I never met a saint, but this girl certainly was a saint. I think I am always astonished at how tragic it is every time you hear a story about 9-11 in a way that I think is uniquely about our our time period and who we are and how we look back on this like insane immense trauma and tragedy documented in this way yeah they're so difficult um and incredibly moving and touching as well and i really really do love reading these of course find them hugely hugely compelling and i I wish that we could just like sit here and read through every single one together and i think the new york times obviously had to pivot their approach and i so admire the way that they did it and the conviction with which they did it but in marilyn johnson's book which i've talked about a couple of times she has a quote from Chuck Strum from a time when she interviewed him. And he would have been, I think, the Obit desk editor at the time of 9-11. And he says, quote, I knew that most of those who died in the collapse would not have been news obituaries under ordinary circumstances. What I wanted to know and could not immediately get an answer to was what it was the paper wanted to do about all the others. I first read Johnson's book in the spring of 2019, and that is the quote that made me put the book down. And it's something that still keeps me up at night. I just can't even fathom it the you know the beauty and the breadth and the wonder of this under ordinary circumstances wouldn't have been 
worthy. In big scare quotes. In that PBS news interview, Christine Kay, who was the the assistant editor of the Metropolitan Desk at the time of the attacks and who played quite a role in the production of this project, she says, if it's shown us one thing, it's that nobody's life was ordinary, that everybody is unique in their own way and interesting. But to me, Strum's sentiments certainly seem to counter that. And after this, the New York Times goes back to the assumption that, in fact, many people are ordinary. You're the New York Times. You have to go back to the regular obituary section. Marilyn Johnson also notes that the form of these portraits did get debated a little bit by obituary writers. Mm -hmm. And this would have been several years after the attacks. But she was at an annual obituary writers conference and... It brings me great joy to know that there is <laughs> such a thing yeah. as an annual conference for obituary writers and a society of professional obituary writers. Mm-hmm. Ugh, if we could all be so lucky to be <laughs> part of that one day. But anyway, there was some disagreement about how effective these portraits actually were. Of course, some folks adored them. Yeah. I think it would be hard not to. But... Others thought they were too sentimental or too simplistic, according to Johnson. That's Mm. what she says. Christine Kay, the same woman who worked on the Metropolitan Desk and was big in this project, calls them the anti-obituary, according to Johnson. But Johnson writes, did they elevate ordinary pleasures to sacred touchstones? Were they condescending? Were they biased? And she just kind of lingers with with those questions. As I've had a little more time to reflect and digest, I think it is this snapshots of lives interrupted that is so emotionally tragic in the way that death is emotionally tragic. And it is almost like by trying to deny the emotionality and form of these pieces is trying to deny our coping with death. You know, and we've talked about this before, we have a weird thing in this society about talking about death and reckoning with our own mortality in a way that I think these pieces do. Mm -hmm. Again, I can't help but think they're beautiful. Yeah. And again, I, I want to say very clearly, every single one of these people deserves to be remembered and grieved. Yeah. I believe that. And I, it feels like even just to hold this book feels like such a such a great privilege mm-hmm. and a very heavy, a very heavy book, like literally and yeah. metaphorically. But I, it feels like such a privilege to see these stories. But I come to these first as a human and then I try mm-hmm. to think about the rhetorical framing a little bit as a scholar. And that article by Nancy Miller discusses a little bit how we idealize the dead, mm-hmm. especially in these circumstances. And I'm not at all suggesting that's what that's what's happening in every case. Yeah. And the portraits 
were always already a national project yeah. because it was an attack that happened to the nation. Yeah. And so it had to be so individual, but it never really could be. It was always part of this collective tragedy and trauma mm-hmm. that the entire country was was going through. And there's a quote from Miller's article where she says, the domestic detail of the toothbrush comes to stand for the intimacy of the home and the home for the nation's public life, the home front against the incursions of terrorism. And so I think it very much escapes the grasp of any individual story. And I think this project in particular, but the obituary form more broadly, also sometimes dictates how we should grieve and what we should grieve. And I think this happens on a national scale, but I think it also happens on the individual level. And I suppose sometimes it's comforting to feel like there are steps to follow after loss, but I think it can also feel incredibly stifling for people who can end up feeling like they're grieving in the wrong way. Another interesting thing that I want to mention is that 10 years after 9-11, the New York Times went back and talked with families who had lost someone in the attacks, and they compiled short video clips that featured those families and chatted with them, and they discussed their life in the 10 years after the tragedy. There's this incredible woman named Alyssa Torres, for example, who wrote a graphic novel called American Widow after she became a widow when her husband died on 9-11. She was seven and a half months pregnant. And so while these initial portraits, I think, kind of informed how we should grieve as a collective nation, This seems to inform how we should move on, Yeah. in a sense. And it informs how we should make sense of the event. Not to get too into the the weeds with, like, academic theory and the like, but I do think a great deal about the badass work of one of our... I hope I'm speaking fairly here, but our favorite (laughs) scholars, Sarah Ahmed. Yeah. And she is just like a badass feminist scholar who left academia, (laughs) just checked out because I believe it was at Goldsmiths College Mm -hmm. where she worked as like an act of protest over the college's mishandling of sexual assault and harassment allegations by students towards staff and faculty Mm -hmm. at the institution. And so she just pieced out of academia altogether. And she's such, such a smart, 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 smart scholar. And now she writes on her own Mm -hmm. and her stuff gets published by Duke University Press. (laughs) And she just like does this independently. And she runs a blog about being a feminist killjoy, mm-hmm. which we is, her. we, we love her. If she's listening, I would die. <laughs> so 
No, we're we're big fans. We have like nerdy scholarly we have a fan club. Free, we a little yeah. bit, yeah. We're trying to recruit members. <laughs> um sorry to go down my, my fangirl you're doing great. rabbit hole. But she wrote a book called What's the Use? On the Uses of Use. Mm-hmm. And she will do this really interesting thing in her work where she will pick a singular word or a term and she will just follow it mm-hmm. and trace its history, its genealogy, but also the ways it's been conceptualized totally. in history and how it's used for people, against people. And she will just explore all the facets of a singular word mm-hmm. and turn it into an entire book. And it's remarkable. I don't know how she does it. Anyway, she wrote this book called What's the Use? And she does talk about how use becomes a value-laden term such that being productive, being useful, contributing to society becomes associated with being morally good or happy. Yeah. And she talks about how society has used the conception of usefulness as a positive thing to continue to reinforce sometimes systems of oppression even. And this gets into all of a lot of stuff about how use as a moral imperative gets unfairly placed on like the laboring class, for instance, yeah. and says, hey, to be good, you need to be useful to your society. And you do that by laboring, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that as it applies to this, what ends up happening is that the individual gets subsumed and then becomes useful in the Sarah Ahmed sense to the national project, first of grieving, but then that, of course, transformed into all kinds of other collective projects after the attacks. It is as if the one time that we're able to subvert the rigidness of the obituary is when we can weaponize, 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 weaponize those emotions. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this practice had continued documenting an emotional snapshot of a life outside of the national project and in fact counter to the national project if they'd written obituaries for children killed in airstrikes in the Middle East in this way, how that emotion would be pitted against itself in a very interesting way. Yeah. I think the sentiments in the foreword and the introduction are so beautifully crafted and touching, but it's as if that can only happen within the covers of this book. Yeah. Right, it has to be contained by this this event, this tragedy, and what we say here cannot and need not apply. Yeah. Outside of this, God, Mary Kate, this is such an interesting project. Yeah, and it's, so, I'm sorry, it's it's heavy. It's very heavy. No, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm also wondering if that you said that the New York Times takes on this role of more of a local newspaper. Yeah. That's maybe more emotionally involved 
mm-hmm. as writers in this tragedy. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is a format that you think should be adopted or continue, or if this in yeah. your mind is closer to what we should be doing with obituaries or because of the weaponization of emotion further yeah. away. That's what's so tricky. Like, I would love to see literally everybody, for the most part, get one of these. Yeah. But I think there's just so much at stake. And in some ways, yes, I would I would love to see a little bit more of this, a little bit more of the compassion, a little bit more of the openness. But I don't ever want it to be exploited. Can you have one without the other? I hope so. God, I hope so. And, you know, the thing is, some people don't feel this way when they lose somebody. There's all sorts of complicated kinds of loss. My mom once told me that there's grief for a dear relationship that is no longer there. And there's grief for a relationship you never had. And how do people who are close to subjects of obituaries you know what do they feel like is healing for them yeah i think that has to be a factor in it too so of course just as with everything we've been discussing it's layered and yeah troubled and ethically fraught and full of tension but perhaps everything worth talking about is to a certain extent and that's why i'm really really grateful for the project that we're doing here yes Me too. Because I think even putting this idea on the table for people perhaps smarter than us to think about and digest and consider is key. So thank you for doing this with me. Of course. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening and for the time that you give us, because that that is a valuable, valuable thing. And we're grateful for it. So agreed. take good care. As always, be a blessing. Not a curse. Bye, everyone. This is the latest from The Deadbeat. That is Mary Kay Gorman. And that is Solana Quistorf. And we want to thank you for listening. If you like what you heard here, tell a friend. And then definitely check out our website, thedeadbeatpodcast.com. There we will have links to research, cool extra content, and all the material referenced in the episode. And we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes to comments at deadbeatpodcast.com. As always, a huge thank you to our producer, Greg Ronco, without whom this project would not be possible. Thank you to the English department at the University of Wyoming, specifically our thesis and reading exam committees for supporting us in our scholarly endeavors, no matter how odd they may be. 